Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Tenants' rights were certainly on the minds of Colorado lawmakers this legislative session. The state passed several bills that will significantly impact multifamily properties and how landlords can write their leases and interact with tenants. Tune in as Blair Lichtenfels and Zach Siegel go over the new legislation covering everything from newly banned provisions and rental agreements and changes to what landlords can consider when vetting tenants to how much landlords can charge for pets. Hi, Blair. Hi, Zach. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm well. It's uh, It's been a minute since we recorded our last podcast, but welcome to episode eight of our ongoing podcast series, where today we are talking about the wonderful world of legislation affecting multifamily properties in the state of Colorado. There is a lot of it. Uh, so, Blair, I imagine you've spent a lot of your time recently reading these bills. This is really all I've done all summer, actually, Zach. That sounds so exciting. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, so obviously we're going to talk through you know seven or eight bills that we think are really relevant to our clients. Um, and it's interesting, this has never happened to me in 15 years of practice. About 30 to 45 days after the legislative session, all of a sudden I was getting pinged by almost every single multifamily operator, developer, equity investor clients who have property or are interested in developing property in the state because there were so many impactful pieces of legislation. So that's really sort of the genesis for why Zach and I, you know, why we decided to do this podcast so we can just put out some quick, short summaries and flags for things that people need to be aware of um, as they move forward. Yeah, I had a really similar experience. And I think what we want to do today is give you the lay of the land, because while we were hearing from clients on particularly two pieces of legislation that we're going to talk about right at the at the top, House Bill 1095 and also House Bill 1099, there are also a number of other pieces of legislation that when those calls came in, it was helpful if we could give our clients the perspective of also you need to be thinking about these other bills and how and their potential implications for you moving forward. And some of those implications, I don't think we know quite yet. Agreed. So we're going to learn a lot over the coming years as these pieces of legislation are actually implemented. But Blair, why don't we start with 1095? Um, do you want to give us kind of the lay of the land on that one? Happy to. So 1095 amends a Colorado statute that addresses provisions that may or may not be included in written rental agreements for residential properties between tenants and landlords. Um, and what this new bill from the recent session does is that it it provides that written rental agreements in Colorado for residential properties may not include any of the following. And I'm going to fly through these quickly because there's a lot. So effectively, these include a clause assigning a penalty to a party stemming from an eviction notice or an eviction action that results from violation of a rental agreement. It prohibits inclusion of a one-way fee-shifting clause awarding attorney's fees and costs to one party except in certain circumstances. It prohibits inclusion of the following waivers, the right to a jury trial, the ability to pursue, join, litigate, or support any kind of joint class or collective action claim. You cannot waive the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, and you cannot waive the implied covenant of quiet enjoyment. There are some minor um, exceptions to those waivers, but generally that's what people need to be thinking about as they review their lease forms. It also prohibits the provision, any provisions that purport to fix any fee, damage, or penalty for a tenant's failure to timely provide a notice of non-renewal of the rental agreement. It also prohibits inclusion 
of anything that characterizes an amount or fee in the rental agreement with the sole exception of a payment for occupancy of the premises as rent for which the, the remedies include eviction. So this means that you cannot characterize fees for utilities or services as rent in your written leases. And the big one that we've been talking to our clients about quite a bit is what I sort of call the bulk fee limitation. And this prohibition says that your written lease agreement cannot include a provision that requires tenants to pay a fee or a markup for a service for which the landlord is billed by a third party, except you may include one that requires the tenant to pay this markup or fee as long as it does not exceed 2% of the amount the landlord was actually billed or $10 per month. So the bulk fee limitation is the one that I think a lot of people are curious about. Candidly, the language is a little unclear. I think that how this is enforced and how it works is going to be changing as enforcement actions, case law, rules and regulations, and other things, you know, evolve. I think where we've landed is that landlords can still charge these fees. They have to provide with the caps, and the fees have to be based on um, the cost basis of third-party services. So we've done a lot of analysis about this, and and sort of too much to really get into, but this is definitely a big one that a lot of institutional landlords include in their leases and is really important to think about on a go-forward basis. Yeah, a couple high-level takeaways as you know, you and I were discussing this bill, I think, and we'll see this throughout because it comes up in the context of some of the other bills, the legislature is limiting the ways that multifamily owners and operators can provide different revenue streams at their properties, right? So these fee limitations restrict other revenue sources outside of the context of base rent, which we know to a lot of our clients are really important revenue streams. I um, think the, yeah. the other thing that, that certain people have talked to me about is that it is limiting the ability for landlords to recapture infrastructure investments in properties that provide services to clients. So the big one here, of course, is is internet and broadband. So oftentimes they'll install really high quality internet over a whole apartment complex. The tenants pay a fee that I think is actually less than they would pay if they contracted individually. But some of that fee is based on a, a long-term, a recapture of a long-term infrastructure investment, not just a service billed by a third party. So certainly some underwriting considerations to take into account But I also think it's important to remember how this is changing lease forms for multifamily properties in the context of your own lease forms that you have, but also when you're diligencing lease forms that you're going to be inheriting as the buyer of a multifamily property. Great point. So this is the moment in time to say, yeah, I do want that lease form reviewed by an attorney, and I do want them to flag some of these issues for me so that I'm not surprised by them going forward. I think we move on to 1099. Do you want to give us the high level on that one as well? Sure. So 1099 is an amendment to the Rental Application Fairness Act, which is a part of the Colorado Revised Statutes. And this effectively addresses um, what what people call uh, portable tenant screening reports. And the bill requires landlords to accept from prospective tenants portable tenant screening reports made directly available to the landlord from a consumer reporting agency, except in certain circumstances. These screening reports have to be prepared by the agency within the prior 30 days at the prospective tenant's request, and they must include certain information set forth in the bill about the prospective tenant. If the prospective tenant actually elects to provide the screening report to the landlord, the landlord cannot charge the prospective tenant either any kind of a fee for the landlord to access 
or use that report. The bill also includes some detailed disclosure requirements that the landlord inform the prospective tenant that they will accept that screening report in compliance with the bill and they cannot charge the fee. So they are requiring the landlord to sort of educate the tenants about their rights under the law. We did look a little bit at an available exemption um, under the 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 statute and more, or the new bill, and we're happy to, to help people out with that and, and look at that. Um, but I think the exemption is a little bit tricky because one of the requirements for qualification obligates the landlord to refund the total amount of an application fee within 20 days after written communication from either the landlord or the landlord's agent or the tenant or the tenant's agent declined to enter into the lease agreement. So if you are, if you are otherwise qualifying for the exemption, there are a few other components, and you charge a fee, you, you have to refund that fee if, if either party decides not to enter into the lease. So this is another thing that people are really having to monitor the way their property managers are interacting with tenants and also um, the way that their um, lease application looks. Yeah, it's certainly going to make it a little more costly for a lot of our clients to enter into leases because there will there'll be applications that don't turn into leases. And a, another bill that is expanding ten, tenants' rights by limiting the amount of diligence that our clients can do on potential tenants in their properties. I think mm-hmm. that's the high level there. Mm-hmm. Well, those are certainly the two that I think I've gotten the most questions about from clients. And it sounds like you're the same. But I do think it'd be helpful if we hit some of the others uh, just a little bit more quickly. So the first one on my list is House Bill uh, 1068, which provides new regulations concerning pet animal ownership in residential properties. So the specific highlight I wanted to hit for, I think, our clients that are focused on or that are doing a lot of multifamily leasing is that this one limits the security deposits and the the pet rent that you can charge to tenants. So security deposits can be no more than $300 for a pet. And pet rent can be no more than the lower of $35 a month or 1% of the tenant's rent. So again, limiting those ancillary revenue streams that our clients have access to and in this context for pets. House Bill 1120, um, this one has some new eviction protections for certain residential tenants. So I found this fascinating. This one requires mediation prior to the commencement of an eviction action for any tenant that's receiving cash assistance. So those are supplemental security income, federal social security, disability insurance, or cash assistance through the Colorado Works Program. Um, The one big caveat here is that the landlord has to know that the tenant is Mm. receiving the cash assistance before they're required to mediate before eviction. So that's the one big caveat there. It also requires that the lease, your lease, and another opportunity for lease form changes that are certainly coming for a lot of our our clients, uh, requires that leases include a statement providing that current law prohibits landlords from source of income discrimination. So exactly to what the bill is targeting, it wants to make clear to tenants that landlords can't discriminate if you receive cash assistance uh, from entering into a lease with you relative to another tenant. So the next one we want to talk about, and I'll be quick here, House Bill 23-1186. This addresses opportunities for remote participation in residential evictions. And effectively, for any residential eviction action filed in county court, the bill requires the court to allow either party or any witness to choose to appear in person or remotely at any return, conference, hearing, trial, or other proceeding. It also authorizes um, pro se defendants to file electronic answer, 
papers through an e-filing system and authorizes either party, if one of the parties is pro se, to file a motion or other documents electronically. There's a few other provisions in here. The thing that I thought was most interesting is reading some of the, the description of the bill on the legislative website. It talks about if any party, if they're having a, a remote hearing or an online hearing, if any party is unable to reestablish connection during the remote remote hearing because it stops or fails, the bill requires the court to reschedule the hearing for the first available in-person date after the date of the originally scheduled hearing, no later than one week after the originally scheduled hearing. So what is this? This is really just going to make it a little bit potentially longer and slightly more cumbersome in connection with um, the, the residential eviction process. And, and we all know that the FED proceeding is never as specified by your lease in terms of timing to begin with. That's the lesson, uh, the, the lesson that every litigator will tell you, that you're going to wait at least 30 days. So this is a little bit longer. The next one that I had is House Bill 1254, which expands the warranty of habitability to include damages due to an, an environmental public health event. So <laughs> sounds broad. It, so, it sounds <laughs> broad, and it is broad. And it's also concerning because these are things that are certainly outside the control of a landlord. So this bill actually came up in response to the Marshall Fire. And as we, we all know, every lease carries the implied warranty of habitability, and you can't contract that away in your residential leases, but now it'll require landlords to remediate damage that's caused by what the bill describes as environmental public health events. That's pretty broad. The bill says those things include fire, flood, and the release of toxic contaminants, but those are all events that are likely outside of the control of a landlord. That sounds slightly vague and slightly concerning. (laughs) So moving on to the next one we're going to talk about, this actually will apply not only just to um, landlords, but this is also going to apply to the sellers. So if you're looking to sell residential real property, you also need to comply with the provisions of this bill. This is Senate Bill 206 and requires certain disclosures related to radon information for residential property. And so for both sellers of real property as well as landlords, you first have to include in your contract for sale or in your lease sort of a broadly defined generic recommendation around the risks for radon and and recommendation for testing related to radon and then warnings about the risks of radon as well. Further, it goes on to require those same buyers and landlords to include specific disclosures related to their knowledge of radon testing. So you have to disclose any knowledge you you have of radon concentrations, including whether a radon test has been conducted on the property, the most recent records and reports pertaining to radon concentrations, description of radon concentrations, um, detected or mitigation or remediation performed, I think that's pretty important, and information regarding whether a radon mitigation system has been installed. It also requires you to provide electronic copy of brochures promulgated by CDPHE. The Real Estate Commission is going to go on to promulgate um, language and other um, procedures, but this is just something to start thinking about on a go-forward basis with respect to sales and leasing. And I will note that um, for the landlord-tenant relationship, the tenant has to acknowledge receipt of the specific disclosed information by signing the disclosure, and the tenant may void the lease agreement Um, and vacate the premises if the landlord fails to comply. Interestingly, the bill also includes this weird language that says on or after January 1st, the tenant's ability to void does not apply to a lease agreement that is one year or less in duration. I'm not really sure why the legislature included that, but it's just something to note. 
That one's certainly an interesting one. Um, next up on my list, I've got another bill implicating the implied warranty of habitability. So this is Senate. You're bill welcome. One forty-eight. Blair Blair allocated who was responsible <laughs> for which bills, and I got implied warranty of habitabilities, which took me back to my law school days that I'm sure no one wants to hear about. But um, this one. Uh, creates a public database of buildings that were used as illegal drug labs and provides that the failure to remediate damage caused by your property being used as an illegal drug lab violates the warranty of habitability. So another item that is outside the scope of what a landlord can guard against with the covenant of quiet enjoyment for their residential tenants, but something that may expose them to a lot of risk. And, you know, as I started to think about these bills, like in concert with one another, you know, something that we talked about on one of the early bills is that you've got new forms that are going to allow you as a uh, residential multifamily landlord to do less diligence on your tenants. But we're also expanding what your the damage you're required to remediate if your tenant causes a serious problem like, you know, cooking meth at the property. So certainly uh, tenants rights were on the minds of the legislator, the legislature this cycle. And we saw it for sure. Okay, so here is our the final bill we're going to talk about, and I, I put it at the end because I didn't think it was that important. As it turns out, I think I'm, I was wrong. Um, this is innocuously titled Protections for Residential Tenants, and um, it includes a number of different things, and I'm not by any means covering all of it. I'm just going to hit the high points for your typical market rate multifamily owner-operator. This um, talks a little bit about what you consider in your rental applications from prospective tenants. And it amends some existing language that that talks about how long you can think about rental history and credit history. And it goes on to say that the amendment goes on to say, if a landlord uses financial information, including rental or credit history, as criterion in consideration of a rental application from a prospective tenant who is seeking, you know, without the use of a housing subsidy, so an average market rate renter, the landlord shall not consider or inquire about the prospective tenant's amount of income except for the purpose of determining that the prospective tenant's annual amount of income equals or exceeds 200% of the annual cost of rent. And it goes on to say that a landlord shall not require a prospective tenant to have an annual amount of income that exceeds 200% of the annual cost of rent. So this means that when you're thinking about who can rent your property, you, you can't sort of discriminate against people based on how much money they make as long as their annual income is 200% of the annual cost of rent. Any violation of this provision, for the record, is a violation of unfair housing practices and subject to all of the remedies um, set forth in the Colorado uh, statutes for the same. The other thing I thought was interesting in this bill that was sort of tucked in here is that it puts a cap on the maximum amount of security deposits. And it goes on to say that on or after the date of this bill, a landlord shall not require a tenant to submit a security deposit in an amount that exceeds the amount of two monthly rent payments under the rental agreement. And it's also worth noting that uh, a violation of this bill is an affirmative defense to an FED action, in addition to potentially being um, a violation of fair housing practices. So this will definitely require landlords to look at the amount of security deposit and the amount of rent and to be really conscientious about the way that they consider prospective tenants and their rental applications. Yeah, so I know, I know I said it once before, but tenants' rights were certainly on the mind of the legislators, legislators at the Capitol this cycle. And 
we're still working our way through how all of these bills will work in concert. You know, you're certainly hearing from Blair the limitations on the rent that you can charge uh, in the last bill and also whether you can discriminate against a tenant based on the source of their income, which we know from one of the other bills you can't. It's it's a it's a fascinating time and I think that the key takeaway is it's time to reevaluate those lease forms and make sure that you're adequately covered going forward and that your your lease is compliant with Colorado law, which is new and recently changed. Agreed. A um, couple housekeeping things before we split. First, we really wanted to thank Ryan Sang, who was one of our summer associates at Brownstein this summer and will be coming back as an associate next fall. He helped us with the research for this podcast. So thank you, Ryan. And the other thing, which is very exciting, I want to congratulate Blair because Blair was just named the one of the co-chairs of our real estate department at the firm, which is super awesome. We are all extraordinarily happy for her. I will say, personally, Blair is one of my favorite colleagues that I've ever worked with and is an absolutely fantastic practitioner, and she will be a fantastic leader in our department. So congratulations, Blair. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate it. I'm really honored and really excited to have this opportunity and look forward to working with you and and all of our colleagues to continue to grow the department and make this an even better place to work and practice law. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.